let's cultivate our motivation and have a real sense of joy and delight at having so many good conditions in our life and especially at having interest in spiritual matters and the opportunity to explore those interests and the intelligence to really make use of what we learn when we explore. And so with that, let's learn today and place what we're doing within the context of being of great benefit to all living beings. In other words, our spiritual practice is not something just to soothe our own misery, but it's something that we want to use to transform ourselves so that we can become of the greatest benefit to all others, and specifically to be able to work for their welfare very extensively and to be able one day to lead them to enlightenment. And so with this long-term view of compassionately working for the welfare of beings, then let's listen and discuss this morning. The reason I said at the beginning that it sounds kind of funny to say that we're going to talk about meditation is because meditation is something we do and we're not talking when we're meditating. But on the other hand, we really need to use words and concepts and talking to understand what meditation really is because there is a lot of misunderstanding about what meditation is. As soon as you find a word in Time magazine, something that used not to be an American word, and then it's in Time magazine, then, you know, chances are that maybe the public doesn't have a totally correct understanding of it, you know, some general understanding. So people, okay, meditation, you sit there like this. But, you know, sitting there like this, you know, you can have a clay figurine sitting there like that. You know, that's not meditation. Meditation is what we're doing with our mind, with our heart, how we're directing our mind. And the word meditate uh, in Tibetan is gom, and it's the same verbal root as to familiarize or to habituate. So we're trying to familiarize or habituate ourselves with realistic perspectives, with constructive ways of looking at things. Yeah. So it's a process of habituation. And so we say we practice meditation. Mean, practice meaning we do it over and over and over again. Yeah. So I think that's an important thing to remember because so often we want to just do something once, get the benefits, and then go on. Uh, but meditation doesn't work like that. It's something that we do repeatedly that we build up energy as we do it. Okay? So, uh, there's different kinds of meditation and there's different ways of, you know, dividing. If you have the class of meditation, there's different ways of cutting the pie. Okay? So, if I'm going to talk about Buddhist meditation, um, we talk about two main meditation methods, and one is called stabilizing meditation. Uh, sometimes it's translated as placement meditation, stabilizing, and the other one is analytical meditation, or um, one of my teachers called it checking meditation. Okay, so in stabilizing meditation, what we're trying to do is develop concentration. We're trying to make the mind stable. Because right now our mind isn't so stable. 
you know. Uh, and I'm not talking about emotional stability and stuff like that. But I'm talking about our mind, if we, if we want to use it to, to really focus deeply on something, we find that very difficult because the mind's bouncing around all the time. You know, it can't stay stably on one object, you know. It's like if you are trying to balance something on the head of a pin. It's like wobbling all the time. So our mind wobbles. And all you need is a couple of minutes of doing breathing meditation to see that's true, don't you? Does anybody do the breathing meditation without having one single distracting thought? You know? So at the beginning, our mind is all over the place. Okay? And sometimes when we start out trying to stabilize the mind and to develop a little concentration, we think that that actually our mind's getting worse. You know, it's like, wow, I have more thoughts now that I tried to meditate. Actually, it's not that we're having more distracting thoughts. We've always had them, we just haven't noticed them. It's like if you're living by the highway, all year round, you don't notice the traffic. But if you go away camping and it's silent, then when you come back to your home, you notice the traffic. So it's similar, you know. In our regular mind, our thoughts are bouncing around and so much stuff is going on. We don't even notice it. But when we sit down and try and really focus the mind, let's say on the breath or the visual, visualized image of the Buddha or something like that, all we notice is like, it's like a trapeze artist, you know, doing doing all sorts of stunts, and you know, so it's like a monkey. Okay, how I named it, taming the monkey mind, you know, because the mind really is like a monkey, just swinging here and there and everything. You know, we're in the past, we're in the future, we're thinking about this, then we're thinking about the opposite, you know, and it all happens very, very quickly. And sometimes we don't even know what's going through our mind. So this first kind of meditation stabilizing is to help us develop some ability to concentrate so that we can direct the mind to a meditation object and be able to keep it there. Because we might have many wonderful things to meditate on, but if we can't keep our mind on them, they aren't going to go in so well. Yeah, so we develop the uh, stabilizing meditation to develop that capacity to keep focused. Okay, so when we were just doing the breathing meditation, watching the breath, there's many ways to, to do breathing meditation. I was doing it as more of a stabilizing meditation, where you just focus on the breath. If you get distracted, bring yourself back home to the breath. If you get distracted again, you bring yourself back home to the breath. It's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid doing homework, yeah, you start out doing your homework and then you go, oh, there's a program on TV. Oh, i got to come back to my homework. Then you do a little bit more, oh, I could go out and play ball with my friend. Oh, got to come back to my homework. Okay. So it's like that. You know, we've all been through school. We know what that's like. Yeah, so it's just this practice if we keep bringing ourselves back. So we have to learn to be very patient with ourselves, you know, not to get exasperated or fed up and say, oh, you know, I just can't concentrate at all, so what's the use? No, you know, concentrating and staying with something is something that is a, is a talent that we can cultivate. It's a skill that we can develop, Yeah. So it's not just something that you're born with or not born with. It's something that you develop. So we have to engage in the practice to develop it and be very patient with ourselves as we're developing it. Okay? So don't be self-judgmental. Sometimes when we we can't do things as well as we would like, we get so down on, on ourselves. You know, oh, I can't do this. Everybody else can. Look, they're all in single-pointed samadhi. It's only me that has a mind bouncing around. Oh, it's all of us. Okay? 
And so it's, it's this thing of we're all trying to cultivate this skill. So we just go about cultivating the skill. Okay? So, stabilizing meditation. Then there's analytic meditation. So analytic, there's not a really good word in in English that really conveys the meaning of analytic meditation because we hear analytic and we think of intellectual analysis kind of being stuck up here, don't we? You know, I'm analyzing something, you know, crunching numbers or something like that. No, analytical meditation isn't some kind of intellectual analysis up here. It's more a way of exploring the meaning of something, looking closely at the meaning of something. Okay, so it's analytical in that sense that we, we're we not just stabilizing the mind on something, but we're really trying to deepen our insight and our understanding about something. And to do that, we have to reflect on it. We have to probe that, that topic. Okay? So there's these two basic kinds of meditation, stabilizing and analytic. Um, at the end, you know, what we want to do eventually is be able to combine them. Yeah? But sometimes at the beginning we cultivate um, stabilizing meditation separately and analytic meditation separately. And then further on in the path we really begin to combine them. Or sometimes in our daily meditation we can combine them too. So, for example, if we're doing a meditation, let's say, on, um, on seeing the, the uh, nature of our precious human life and how that gives us so many possibilities to learn the Buddha's teachings and to develop ourselves spiritually, if we're doing that meditation, then we're thinking about the topic of precious human life. You know, there's a whole outline on how to do it. We're free from certain disadvantages. We have certain advantages. So we go through and we think about each one and we make examples about it from our life. That is all analytic meditation. Okay? So we do that to develop our understanding of the topic and to really mm, make it personal. So we're not just thinking about the teachings like out there or something, but we're thinking, no, this relates to me and my life. And then as we do this, then sometimes we get a very strong feeling of, wow, my life really is precious. I am so amazingly fortunate. How in the world did this happen? You know. And so when you have that kind of feeling of, just, whoa, I am so fortunate. Then you bring in the stabilizing meditation and you just keep your mind single-pointedly on that feeling of fortune. Okay? Getting what I'm saying? Or, for example, let's say we're doing the meditation on love. We might, or let's say compassion, yeah? Or both of them. Um, love is the, is the wish for uh, beings to have happiness in its causes. Compassion is the wish for them to be free of suffering in its causes. Okay, so let's say we're doing a meditation on love. We want sentient beings to have happiness in it, and their ca- its causes. So first we have to reflect a little bit on what happiness is. So trying to understand what happiness is and how and then how how living beings lack happiness, that's using analytic meditation, isn't it? Because we have to think about sentient beings and what in the world is happiness? You know, they're telling me if I get new tires at Les Schwab, I'm going to be happy. Is that happiness? Yeah. And they're telling me if if I eat, you know, a chocolate mousse, it's going to be happiness. Is it? You know, so what, when, when I say that I'm wishing others to have happiness, what exactly am I wishing them? You know, chocolate-flavored Les Schwab tires? You know, what, what, what am I wishing them for? What is happiness? So you've got to think about it, okay? And this is really an important discussion, and 
or maybe this afternoon can explore it some more. Okay, what is happiness? Because there's many different kinds of happiness. And which kind of happiness is long-lasting happiness? Which kind of happiness goes away very quickly? Which kind of happiness brings more problems with it? Which kinds of happiness doesn't bring more problems? You know, how do you, what are the causes for one kind of happiness? What are the causes for other kinds of happiness? Okay, so we think about this. And then we also think about how sentient beings lack happiness. Yeah. And so all this kind of reflection that we're doing, we're using thought. So not all, don't have the idea that all meditation is non-conceptual. Here we're using concept and thought, but we're using it in a very creative and useful way in order to deepen our understanding of something. Okay? And so sometimes, you know, we'll, we'll just really reflect deeply on what is happiness and then start looking at other people and other living beings and do they have happiness or don't they have happiness? And we reflect on how they lack ha- all the happiness that they want. And then, when the feeling of wanting them to have happiness comes, then we just, at that point, we stop the analytical part of the meditation and we switch to stabilizing meditation where we just focus on that internal feeling of, I want beings to have happiness and the causes of happiness. And so you just stay so on that feeling of how wonderful it would be if everybody had happiness and the causes of happiness. Okay, And even if you can't have that feeling towards everybody, start out with a couple of people, you know, and then gradually expand it. Okay? So you see, in that way we do some of the analytic meditation using probing, checking the topic, using thought in a useful way. And then, when we get some kind of feeling, then we stop and we just hold that feeling. Okay, using the stabilizing meditation. Okay, so you clear on what those two, two ways are? Okay. Then, another way to cut the pie of meditation, to divide meditation, is there are meditations that... Um, where you're trying to understand a particular object. So these are more object-oriented meditations or content-oriented meditations. You're talking about the content or the object. You're trying to develop an understanding of it. And then the other kind of meditation is more aspect-oriented meditation where you're trying to cultivate your subjective mind into a certain feeling or a certain mood. Okay? So that I'm translating, you know, saying object-oriented, oriented, um, aspect-oriented, that's more a translation from the Tibetan. It doesn't really give us the idea of what's going on. But the first one is more where you're trying to understand or realize an object that you haven't understood or realized before. And the second one is where you're trying to transform your mind into a certain subjective feeling or a subjective emotion. Okay, so let me give you examples of both of these. With the object-oriented one that we're trying to understand something, We may be meditating on impermanence, for example, or precious human life, or, um, you know, emptiness, or the disadvantages of cyclic existence, you know, or the causes of, of misery. So in those, what we're trying to do is understand the topic at hand. Like, you know, subtle impermanence. We really don't know what impermanence is. Even gross impermanence is kind of befuddling to us. You know, people die and we're so surprised. How did that happen? That wasn't supposed to happen. 
you know, but it's quite a natural occurrence, isn't it? You know, we spill spaghetti sauce all over the, our white clothes. And that's not supposed to happen either. But things are impermanent, and our white clothes, you know, if they don't get spaghetti sauce, they're going to get mud or they're going to get something else. Okay? But we're always so surprised when things change. You know, relationships change, don't they? Yeah. But we're always surprised. So this whole idea of change, whether it's gross or subtle impermanence, we need to actually reflect on it and try and understand what impermanence means. Yeah, and what it means, what its causes are, what its nature is, what the ramifications of impermanence means. You know, if everything is impermanent, what does that mean for my life? Yeah. What does it mean for how I make decisions and how I place priorities? Yeah. So that kind of reflection, yeah, we're trying to understand the object which is impermanent. Or if we're trying to understand the ultimate nature, the emptiness of inherent existence, then there too we're probing to try and understand that as an object. It's our very nature, but we don't understand what it is. Okay? On the other, so those are examples of like object oriented meditation. Subject oriented meditation, okay, or aspect oriented or meditation where we're trying to transform the mind into a certain subjective aspect. That is, for example, when we're meditating to develop faith in the teachings, faith or confidence in the Buddhist teachings or when we're meditating to develop love and compassion. Okay? We're trying to transform the nature of our mind into a certain experience. Yeah. So, for example, if we're meditating to develop faith or confidence in the Buddha Dharma Sangha as valid objects of refuge, then we're going to think about the qualities of the Buddha, of the Dharma, of the Sangha. Yeah, we're going to think about those qualities. And then by doing that, our confidence in their ability to guide us on the path will increase. And our mind gets transformed into that aspect or into that feeling of confidence or faith. Okay, you getting what I mean? Yeah, so understanding impermanence is different than having faith in your heart, isn't it? Yeah. When you're understanding impermanence, impermanence is the object, you're trying to understand it. Faith, you're trying to generate. You're trying to become that. You're not trying to become impermanent, because you already are. You're trying to understand it. Okay? And so similarly, uh, with love and compassion, we're trying to transform the mind into the experience of love into the experience of compassion. So at that time, love and compassion are not the objects of our meditation. Like before when I was explaining how we develop love, we might start the meditation out thinking about sentient beings or thinking about happiness. So happiness might at the beginning be the object we're meditating on. And then how uh, living beings lack happiness is the thing we're trying to understand. That's more the object-oriented. But then when the whole purpose of that, when we're meditating on love, is to, to generate the experience of love within ourselves. So we're not trying to understand what love is. We're trying to feel it. Okay. Same with compassion. We're not just sitting there, okay, compassion is this definition, and it has this aspect, and you... Hear the cause. You know, you're not intellectually understanding compassion, but you're really trying to, by looking at sentient beings' lack or sentient beings' multitudes of unsatisfactory conditions, we're trying to transform our mind into a mind of compassion. You know, where our, where our heart is really open to to other living beings and really wants them to be free of all their different kinds of misery. Okay? So you're not thinking about compassion, trying to understand it like it's an object, but you're trying to bring it up in your own experience. 
Okay? Getting what I'm saying? Yeah? So that's, that's another way to, to think about meditation. Trying to understand the object versus generating a certain feeling inside. Okay? So there's different ways to cut the pie. Yeah? Of meditation. Yeah? So when you're, when you're uh, doing, for example, um, meditation to understand the object, you might employ both stabilizing and analytic meditation to do that. Okay? And similarly, when you're trying to generate an experience of faith or confidence, love, compassion, you might do both, you know, stabilizing and some analytic meditation in that session where you're trying to transform your mind into the nature of compassion or love or faith. Okay? Now, it's very, very helpful to have a regular daily meditation practice. Yeah? Some of the times people say, oh, I've been meditating for a long time, but I don't seem to make any progress. And then, you know, if you say, well, when do you meditate? Tell me about your practice. Well, I meditate about ten minutes every day. Well, actually, it's not every day. You know, it's kind of like, well, maybe three times a week I meditate for ten minutes, and maybe on Saturday I do an hour or two, <laughs> or something like that. But what, ha- what you see is that there's not a, a stable thing happen- happening daily. So even though somebody may go on a retreat, you know, once a year, but if they don't have a stable daily meditation practice, it becomes difficult to maintain the depth that that you've got when you were on retreat and to actually develop your understandings. So I think, you know, stability in our meditation practice, regularity is really important. And um, at the beginning... It's, they always advise start with short sessions. If you start with something very long, yeah, or even if one day a week you do a really long session and you push yourself, it's like, okay, today I'm going to meditate for two hours. You know, by the end of your two hours, you don't want to go back to your meditation cushion because it's, it's too much for you, you know? It's, it's like wanting to... Oh, you know what it's like? It's like how I, uh, how I wrecked my back one time. I decided that, you know, I was just going to somehow be as flexible as I was when I was seven and eight years old. I mean, there's no reason why I shouldn't be able to. Well, you know, so one day I just pushed a lot and the next day I felt it. Yeah. So the, the idea is that what we want to do is build things up in a gradual way, yeah? Uh, because when we leave our meditation cushion, we want to have a feeling of, oh, that was something pleasant. So I want to come back to it. Whereas if we push ourselves, you know, then we tend not to want to come back to, to something. Okay. Now, somebody's going to hear that and go, oh, well, she said not to push herself, so... The alarm clock rang. I'm not going to push myself to get up to meditate because I'll just develop resentment if I do. So I'll just sleep in and I'll meditate tomorrow. No, that's not what I'm saying, okay? I think, you know, there's a certain way in which we do need to push ourselves, but I would say maybe nudge ourselves rather than push. Or maybe even discipline ourselves, okay? So it's like uh, every day I'm going to do some practice. Now, start off, you know, figure out a, an amount of time that's reasonable for you. It might be 10 minutes and gradually you make it longer. It might be a half an hour. Everybody's going to be different. Yeah, and you can gradually extend it. But you do it very, very regularly. Yeah. Regularly means every day. Yeah. And... It's best. The best way to do it every day is to do it at the same time every day. And if you can make that same time every day, the first thing in the morning, then it's going to be really, really good. Some people leave it for the end of the day. I mean, because some people are 
day people, morning people, and some people are evening people. Yeah, so some people leave their practice for the end of the day, and they manage to do it in the evening. I'm not like that, okay? After a certain time in the evening, I can not focus enough to meditate. I can read. I can study. Yeah. But if I sit still, <laughs> you know, it doesn't work so well. I can prostrate. You know, I could do mandala offerings. I can do lots of things that some kind of dharma practice that involves some action, physical action. But to sit still doesn't work for me. Okay? Um, so I think, I'm biased, but it's always agrees with me. Um, that, <laughs> 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 you know, actually, you know, it's best to do morning and evening meditation, but I think starting your day off with some meditation is really, really good because it's, it's a way of starting your whole day. It's a way of just waking up in the morning and coming home to yourself and learning to be peaceful. Mm-hmm. So instead of kind of, you know, getting up, getting out of bed, yeah, going to check the message machine, check your email, turning on the radio, reading the newspaper, you know, grabbing a sandwich and going out the door to get to work so you're late. You know, who wants to start the day in that kind of way? I think it's much more productive to start with a little bit of silent time, you know, our meditation time, where we really, you know, reflect on our motivation for the day, think of how we want to be in the world, develop our understanding of the different topics the Buddha spoke about. Because if we do that in the morning, then the understanding or the feeling that we generated will, will carry through with us through the rest of the day. Whereas, you know, if we just get up and then start reading the newspaper or start working on whatever projects we happen to do, that's what we're filling our mind with first thing in the morning when the mind is more subtle and, and clear. Okay? So I think that that time in the morning of... of Doing the meditation is very good. Yeah. And also, if you don't like to talk to people in the morning, it's a great reason why you don't have to talk to them. You know? Because I, I just, you know, I tell people, because I travel a lot, you know, I say, I just stay in people's homes, I say I don't talk until after I do my morning practice. Yeah? Because I don't like to talk to somebody else first thing in the morning. It's like too much energy. Yeah, whereas if I'm able to be still and, you know, just come back in my own heart and, you know, do my different practices, then that sets a much better foundation for the rest of the day. So I think making your meditation time the same time each day is very, very helpful. If you have a hard time doing that, write it in your calendar. Okay? 6.30 every morning, I have an appointment with the Buddha. Yeah? And then you keep your appointment. You don't stand the Buddha up, do you? Yeah. Buddha's waiting for you to come. Yeah. Buddha's sitting here. Not the statue, but you know. The real Buddha's sitting here. We was in the meditation hall this morning. Mmm, so and so's having a nice nap right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But, you know, sometimes we're sick or we don't feel well. Okay, so we've got to take care of our health. But I, th- I think it is good to really try and, you know, be regular and to nourish our own heart in the same way that we, we nourish our body. Yeah? And my philosophy is if you skip morning meditation, you should skip breakfast. Yeah? Why do we think breakfast is more important than morning meditation? Yeah, we don't skip skip breakfast, do we? Now we always manage something. Why? Because we need the energy for the rest of the day. We need to nourish our body. But you know, the energy we get from food, and you know, it's going to nourish our body for a few hours. Yeah. But if we do our meditation practice, that energy, you know, that nourishment of our heart is going to have very, very long-term consequences. 
Yeah, very long term. So we, we really need to respect ourselves and want to nourish ourselves spiritually. And so really make it, uh, you know, a daily practice. Okay, so I, th- I think, you know, spiritual practice and eating, you know, are both ways that we take care of ourselves. Now, we shouldn't just think eating and sleeping are ways to take care of ourselves, but doing our practice is how we care for ourselves, too. Because there's a big difference if you do your practice and if you don't do your practice. Somebody was, I read a story once, one woman, um, she she was practicing in, you know, meditation regularly, and she had young kids, and then at one point she kind of stopped, and after a little, you know, because you get too busy, so you stop. And then her four-year-old or five-year-old said, Mom, you should start meditating again. You were nicer when you meditated. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> yeah? So, you know, if a four-year-old can see the difference in their parent, then you know that something's happening. Yeah? So we, we take care of ourselves in that way. It's really a way of respecting ourselves and caring for ourselves. You know, and if you're sick and you sleep longer than when you first get up, do your practice then. Yeah. Or I've had times when I've been very sick, I can't get out of bed at all. I just lie in bed and do my practice. You know, you don't have to sit up in perfect meditation position. You know, you just lie in there and you, you still do your practice. Because your, your meditation practice is what's done with your mind, with your heart. You know, sitting in meditation position is the, is much better because you don't fall asleep so much. It takes me much longer to do my practice if I'm sick and lying down than it does if I'm sitting up. Okay? Because when I lie down, I'm like in and out. Yeah? But when you sit up, so that's why it's recommended that we sit up when we meditate. Yeah? Uh, and, and, you know, some people ask, how can I practice lying down meditation? Well, the... <laughs> There is a story in the scriptures that the Buddha, there, there was one uh, monk who, who really did much better when he, he practiced meditation lying down. And the Buddha, with his clairvoyant power, saw that because that was in a previous life, he had been a, a bullock, a, you know, a, a buffalo, and had been lying down a lot. <laughs> so because of familiarity with lying down and this life as a human being, he you know, <laughs> so I don't know. Maybe our two kitties next life they're going to come back to the Abbey as human beings, and they'll want to meditate curled up in a ball. You know, <laughs> they'll go to the, their little kitty baskets and curl up. And oh, I feel so comfortable meditating like this. <laughs> but actually, if you look at them, you know, you guys. Very often when we're in the hall here. They are sitting in front of the Buddha image in the main room. Yeah? And sometimes it's so cute. Manjushri is sitting there. Manjushri is the cat with three legs. And he's sitting with the head there with both of his hands, paws out like this, facing the Buddha. Like that's the most he could do to prostrate, you know, with both paws straight out in front of them. It's really cute. But they kind of, you know, they kind of tune in there. Anyway, enough of that distraction. <laughs> yeah. So really developing the habit of meditating at the same time every day is very, very helpful. Yeah. If you are sleepy when you start your meditation session, then do prostrations. Yeah. It's very, very helpful. If you do a lot of bowing to the Buddha, it energizes your body and it also helps you to purify negative karma. And it helps you to remember the Buddha's qualities. And when you remember the magnificent qualities of the Buddha, then your mind gets happy. You know, when we think of the of the Buddha's love and compassion and wisdom, our own mind gets very, very happy. And so you're thinking about that while you're bowing, and you know, so that really is a good way to start a meditation session if you have problems with sleepiness. Another solution to, to sleepiness is you know put cold water on your face 
Or what Lama Yeshe used to do is he had the monks have these little bowls, you know, the water bowls, not, not the big ones like this, but small water bowls. And you had to put a water bowl on top of your head in the meditation hall. Yeah? It was very embarrassing when you started to nod off. <laughs> so it really helped people stay awake. Uh-huh. So something like that is, is very, very helpful. Yeah? So making meditation session at the right amount, do it at the same time every day. Like I said, if you can do it in the morning and the evening, it's very helpful. Yeah? Because it's kind of, then it's kind of like bookmarks for the day. And especially, they say in the morning, if you can focus on uh, meditating on compassion and the altruistic intention to attain Buddhahood for the benefit of beings, then that's very good in the morning because then in the day when you're encountering all these sentient beings, then you have that imprint of, you know, I'm working for their benefit. And I actually, I find that very, very helpful. You know, especially when I'm in a bad mood. Yeah, because when we're in a bad mood, it's like, get I get away from you. I don't want to be around anybody. Yeah? You don't seem to be, a, yeah, you like that when you're in a bad mood? It's like, ugh. You know, get, get away, everybody. I want to get away. And, and I find it very, very helpful when I, when I notice that to then, when I see any sentient being, whether it's an animal or an insect or a human being, whether I like them or don't like them, to have to consciously generate the thought of, I'm practicing the Dharma for the benefit of this person. To have that thought or to train myself to have the thought of, this living being has been kind to me. Because the bad mood just says, Oh, you're full of rubbish. Get away. But it's a thought, isn't it? There's a thought going on there. So if we can replace one thought with another thought, then it can really help to change the mood. So if I, you know, when I'm consciously trying to think, you know, that person's been kind to me, and that person's been kind to me, and that one's been kind to me, and think of ways in which they've been kind. If not this life, then in previous lives. When you're thinking about the kindness of somebody, then that is, your mind is going to be occupied with that, and it's not going to have space to think of like, ah, get them away. Okay? You getting what I'm saying? Yeah? Or if you consciously think, I do this in airports a lot. You know, I don't like being in airports very much, so I need a good practice because it's so noisy and it's so crowded and the air is stale and I can complain about airports all you want me to. But what I practice is, you know, is like looking at the different people and thinking, you know, I'm practicing Dharma for their benefit. And so then it changes how I look at them. It's like, oh, I have some relationship with them. No. And I, yeah, I'm not just practicing Dharma just because uh, it's something to do. It's like, you know, it's for a reason and it's a purpose. And and it's to be able to ultimately be able to benefit these living beings more. And so I remind myself of that, you know, in the airports. Especially when you're on a plane with a crying child, you know. I'm practicing for their benefit and they've been kind to me okay so these kinds of thoughts you know taking control of our mind instead of just giving in to the bad moods can can really you know it's it's difficult like taking control of a wild horse yeah but it's possible it's not an impossibility it is possible and so if we try, then slowly we'll develop that habit and we'll have some success in doing it. Okay? Okay. So let me leave a little bit of time for some questions, comments. There's much more to talk about in terms of meditation, but this is something. Yeah? Can you say 
So the, the Buddha encouraged us to be mindful. In other words, to, to know what our precepts are, to be aware of what we're doing, to um, hold on to our values and ways of being in all four bodily positions. Okay, When we're lying down, when we're standing, when we're sitting, and when we're moving. Okay, so we're trying to develop mindfulness and also this other mental factor that I don't have a good translation for. Some people call it introspection and some people call it clear comprehension, but it's a mind that that is aware of what we're doing and then mindfulness steers us towards doing it in a constructive way. Okay, so when we're doing walking meditation, we're trying to be aware of what's happening in our body and what's happening in our mind as we're moving. Yeah? And this can be very, very helpful for getting us to slow down, and it can also be extremely relaxing. And I think, too, if, if you tend before meditation sessions to have, or if you tend when you sit down for sitting meditation to have a lot of distraction, I found that doing walking meditation in the break times is very, very helpful. There's many different ways of doing walking meditation. The Theravadas do it very slow. The Chinese and Koreans do it very quickly. The Tibetans don't do it. Um, <laughs> Because they get exercise, you know, in old Tibet, you got enough exercise going up and down the mountains. Um, so there's different ways of doing it. In the Theravada way, what you might do is go be, you pick two points, you know, and you walk back and forth between those two points. So you're not trying to get anywhere. That doesn't mean that you can't practice it when you are trying to get somewhere. You know, we should always practice it. But but what you do is you walk. Kind of, you start out walking normal speed, but maybe a tinge slower, and then you just become aware of, you know, right and left, and right and left as you're walking, okay? Then when, when you can keep your focus pretty much on right and left, then you might slow it down a little bit and break each step into parts. So each step has lifting, pushing, and placing. Okay, then the left foot has lifting, pushing, placing. Of course, if the left foot is placing, the right foot is starting the lifting. Yeah? So you become more aware of the, these different phases in a step. And then after that, you might slow it down even more to really feel... Uh, you know, all the different things that are happening as as you're lifting, as you're pushing your foot forward, as you're placing it down. Okay? So, so one way to do the, med- the walking meditation is like that. Or if you don't want to do it to getting so slow that you're creeping along, you know, just, just do it where you're walking, you know, right and left and right and left. And... If you can do it, you hold your hands here when you're doing it. That can be very helpful. Or you just let them by your side. And try and make your breath coincide with how you're stepping, how you're walking. Yeah? So your inhalation maybe is on the lifting. The exhalation is on the placing, depending how, how fast you're walking. But if you can get your breath and your um, your walking speed to to coordinate in some way or another, yeah. I'm not say, saying that each step has to have an in breath and an out breath. It might be two steps have an in breath and an out breath, or you know. But something like that. If you can do that, then it, your mind gets very very relaxed because kind of your breathing is slower. Your walking is slower. Your mind is aware of your breath and your walking. Everything is in tandem. OK? 
Okay, so the mind the mind has some some focus and concentration at that time. Yeah, especially being aware of what's happening with your feet. It's also good to be aware of impermanence as you're walking. Yeah, you don't have to just be aware of the feelings in your feet, but just the impermanence of the steps. Yeah, lots of things to meditate on when you're walking. Okay, but that can be very very helpful. Slowing yourself down, getting ready for meditation. Because what we do the rest of the day influences what our meditation sessions are like. When I said like the Koreans and the, the Chinese, and I think Japanese too, do the walking meditation very quickly, is they usually have a meditation hall that is circular where everybody sits around the edge. And then there's a Buddha figure in the middle and then you circumambulate the Buddha during your walking meditation. And you walk very, very briskly to get energy in your body. Okay? So you're walking quickly. You're circumambulating the Buddha. So you're thinking of the Buddha's qualities. You're still trying to be aware of how your body's moving. But the activity in your body is very good. It gets, gets you going so that then when you sit down to meditate after that, you know, you're... Your, your body has some energy. Okay? Mm-hmm. And well, um, you spoke about the aspect and object mm-hmm. in terms of different ways of approaching meditation. Mm-hmm. The first thing that came up to me was um, when dealing with dating. And mm-hmm. say, for example, chanting. Mm-hmm. How it can be an object uh-huh. and also an asset. Yeah. And so when you brought up the idea of moving between uh, analytical and stabilizing. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, how would you, how what would be the process by which you move between aspect and object mm-hmm. in meditation? Kind of. So you're asking in a daily meditation, a deity meditation. Yeah, not not anything like self-generation, anything like that, but just in the, in the practice itself. Okay. Well, if if you're doing a daily meditation, well, let's say you're visualizing Tenrezi. And then you're doing, the, you know, like in the practice, you're taking refuge and generating bodhicitta and doing the meditation on the four immeasurables and the seven limb prayers and all those, that kind of thing, okay? There's a time where, you know, you can just focus on the image of Chenresi single-pointedly. Chenresi is the Buddha of compassion. That's Chenresi. So... You might do, in that case, you might do analytic meditation in the sense of going through all the details of what does Chenresi look like, you know, the head and the hands and the body and everything like that. And then you would do stabilizing meditation, holding your mind firmly on that, that image. Okay. Um, does that involve the object you're not really meditating on Chenresi as an object when you're doing that there might be another time when you're meditating on Chenresi where you're trying to think about what are the qualities of Chenresi and so then you might go to the refuge section of the Lam Rim and think about the different qualities and so getting to understand the qualities would be the object oriented meditation and then having a feeling of trust and confidence in in Chenresi come up would be the aspect yeah part okay yeah you talked about say meditating on happiness in this cause and uh-huh. well I did that last Wednesday and I did it on Friday so I got the nuts but I could see that that could go on for a long oh. time and it never be ending you bet you bet. That's why these meditations are things, you know, you can stay with one meditation topic for a long, long time. Yeah? And and what we try and do in our practice, when we have a series called The Stages of the Path of uh, to Enlightenment. And when we do the checking meditations, we are going through through them in a cycle. You know, there's a whole series, and so we're cycling through those, trying to enrich them more and more. Sometimes you get to, to one of them, and how you are, you know, what you really need that day. I mean, you, you want to stay on that for quite a long time. And even if 
that particular topic isn't the one that you're doing for that day, you still remember it sometime in your practice because the more you imprint in your mind those different things, the, the more they, you know, they come alive in you. Yeah. But for sure, something like developing love and compassion, you can stay on those a long, long time. And, and it takes a long time to actually develop them. Because before you can develop compassion, for example, we have to understand what dukkha or unsatisfactory conditions means. Because how can we wish sentient beings to be free of unsatisfactory conditions if we don't know what those conditions are? Yeah. So then you do that whole meditation to understand the disadvantages of, of cyclic existence and what we actually mean by suffering. That it doesn't mean just mean having pain in your body or, you know, emotional, you know, pain. It doesn't mean just that. It, it means much more. So you might do some checking at, you know, some um, analytic meditation on that topic, and then the more you understand that, then when you come to think about, you know, meditate on compassion and want sentient beings to be free of unsatisfactory conditions, then it comes much stronger because you know exactly what it is you want everybody to be free from. Yeah. So when we look at these different topics, don't see each topic as some kind of isolated thing with its own little perimeter around it. But when you do the, the meditation on the stages of the path, you draw you know, what you learn in one topic into your meditation on another topic. And that's how they really, really begin to, to uh, enhance each other. Does that answer your question okay? okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, usually we'll start for the short period, maybe 10 minutes. Uh-huh. You ever set a clock so that it brings in? Sometimes if I get into meditating... I don't want to be interrupted. Exactly. So. Okay. Oh. <laughs> well, I would say, you know, leave yourself enough time so that if you really get into a, a, a meditation, you don't have to break it right in, in the middle. You know, let yourself extend it a little bit. But don't force yourself to extend it. That's the thing, you know, I'm talking about. But if you have a certain time that you need to be done by, because you need to go to work, then you might set one of those little egg timers, yeah, to get to the maximum amount of time that that you can meditate. Okay. So we're going to... Last question, and then we're going to have to stop. Um, they usually explain... Uh Centering or meditation to be done in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. And one of the things is that you keep your eyes just a little bit open, mm -hmm. kind of downcast. Mm -hmm. I find that that's just, I just get sleepy every time, no matter how many times I've done it. Mm -hmm. And I find that if I, I meditate with my eyes open, it's much easier. Like wide open. Yeah, just mm -hmm. fully open, just looking, not focusing on anything, just kind of. Mm -hmm. but open all the way and even sometimes if I'm very sleepy then to elevate my, my viewpoint almost to level mm -hmm. that it's much mm -hmm. more it usually turns out much better but then that's going against what they normally say oh, okay. for okay. yeah well um, His Holiness says in different kinds of meditations you do different things with your eyes so usually you try and have your eyes a little bit open but you know, more downcast but not looking at anything. They say if your eyes close naturally, that's okay as long as you aren't getting drowsy. But he's having the problem of even, because they say that keeping them open a little bit is an antidote to drowsiness. And he's saying it's not enough for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So I would say, you know, according, because I think sometimes things need to vary according to the individual, that if you find that keeping your eyes wide open you know, it works for you best, that's fine. But you shouldn't be looking at anything. And you shouldn't be moving your head around and changing your gaze or anything like that. So if you're doing a visualization practice, 
you know, if your eyes are open, but still with your mental consciousness, you're able to visualize the deity, then that, I think, and that, and you find personally as an individual that works well for you. I would say that's fine. With the visualizations, is also very beneficial. I was talking about specific for like reading meditation, but mm-hmm. my eyes are closed. At, when I'm visualizing the, the realness of it, it's so much less. And if my eyes are open, it actually feels like I'm in the presence of these uh-huh. I just can't see them with my physical eyes. Uh-huh. But if I close my eyes, then it's just like imagination and it's uh-huh. like some game. Yeah, so everybody's really different, you know, as far as that goes. His Holiness says we talk to different people, and they find that when they keep their glasses on when they meditate, their visualizations are clear. <laughs> you know, but that's just that's just individuals. You know, individuals are really different. So, you know. Well, I take mine off to meditate because if I leave mine, I feel I'm focusing. Yeah, me too. You know, I tend to take them off when when I want to, you know, do that silent internal contemplation because it just gives, yeah, I have the same reaction. So everybody's really different, you know, as far as things go. Okay, so let's just sit quietly for a couple of minutes and digest. <laughs> 